welcome to the Soccer ESQ podcast. My name is Mickey Turner. You can find me on Twitter at TurnerESQ. I'm also a contributor at The Athletic and at Sounder at Heart, and I also write for my own website, SoccerESQ.com. Life in lower division sports in the United States can be a bit rough these days, and nowhere is that more apparent than in soccer in the United States, where teams and leagues can come and go at a moment's notice. Recently, we've had some rumblings that some teams in the USL Championship and USL League One may not be long for this world. So to talk about those issues and lower division soccer generally, I called up Nipun Chopra, who is based out of Indianapolis, Indiana. And like me, Nipun wears a couple of different hats. He's a doctor by day, but sports writing is his other passion. And when it comes to lower league soccer in the United States, Nipun's one of the best out there covering the sport. It's a great conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. All right, joining me now, Nabuhun Tropa, who is out in Indianapolis, a little bit under the weather, but I want to thank him for joining me to talk a little bit about lower uh, division uh, soccer and uh, maybe a little bit about the debacle that happened last night, uh, recording this on Wednesday after the U.S. has uh, fallen to defeat uh, to Canada up in Toronto. Uh, we'll probably get to, uh, to talking a little bit about that, but Nabuhun, uh thanks for joining me. Mickey, absolute pleasure. Uh, always good to talk the beautiful game with you, and uh, always good. Uh, it's always good to catch up with you. I'm really uh, I admire uh, how you kind of took the bull by the horns in the last two years. Well, actually, more than two years. Two, yeah, about two years. You've kind of become the go-to guy with a lot of the stuff about uh, the legal intricacies of the, the beautiful game stateside. Yeah, I appreciate that. Obviously, uh, me and uh, Professor Stephen Bank has uh, been out there as well. Uh, it's kind of a niche uh, niche uh, area to cover, but uh, that makes it all the more better because I get to cover most of it. So uh, I wanted to have you on to chat a little bit, as I said, about uh, lower uh, division soccer and kind of uh, what's going on. Uh, there was a report that came out, and you have done some reporting on this, uh, regarding Lansing Ignite of the USL League One, uh, which is third division. Uh, there are some reports that they are not going to be around next year. Um, so I guess we'll start kind of at the end and talk a little bit about what you've heard uh, about uh, about that situation. Yeah, so about, uh, so as you said, we're recording on Wednesday. So about uh, Thursday of last week, I started hearing some conversation about Lansing being in trouble and I reached out to the club and was met with radio silence. As by the way, I, I still haven't heard back from the club mm. or uh, or anything official from the league, except that the league has said to reach out to the club. So it's like this infinite loop of uh, of silence. Um, but what the rumor was that the the team was folding, um, and then I heard more off record on background corroboration of that. Uh, tried another loop of trying to confirm that with the club and the league. Silence again. Uh, and then uh, two days ago, I guess it was Sunday morning, uh, the players, Monday morning, the players were told um, that they're, uh, that basically they're, uh, this was the last season for Lansing and uh, that the club was shutting down. Um, there's still some questions about the player contracts that haven't, this hasn't really come up yet and Maybe by the time you're recording, uh, people listen to this, there, there's actually some conversation that needs to happen about whether uh, the players, uh, how their contracts were interpreted. But, uh, yeah, it, to kind of long story short, yeah, Lansing Ignite, I'd say 99.9% certain to be a uh, one-season wonder, and uh, it will be shutting up shop uh, here pretty soon. 
Yeah, and so Lansing, as I said, is a Division USL League One team. Uh, came in uh, at the beginning of, of this season, obviously, and it looks to be playing only one year. Uh, and I wanted to talk a little bit about the background of the team because uh, they came in uh, and got some assistance from the local government there in Lansing. Um, and is is the owner of uh, the Ignite also the owner of the uh, minor league baseball team there? Yeah, the Lugnuts. Yeah. Yes, and so he uh, the owner got some uh, some assistance from the uh, local city council um, regarding a tax package to help them with you know changing the stadium around to make it uh, so it can get configured to soccer. And they also got interestingly as I was reading this, uh, they also got some uh, some subsidies subsidies in the way of marketing costs. Uh, which would have stretched out over, uh, looks like about 16 years. Uh, and it's just, you know, obviously the city won't be on the hook for those going forward if they don't leave, but, uh, this is a bit of a surprise given, uh, what, uh, you know, the owner comes in, uh, gets these subsidies and, uh, appeared to have, uh, you know, his own stadium with which to, to run the team. Are you surprised that he is not, you know, he's waving the white flag after only one year? I'm surprised and I'm not surprised. The reason I say that is because I'm surprised that someone who has the financial uh, clout that uh, the Lugnas uh, ownership does uh, is backing away after what we consider minimal losses compared to yeah. what uh, NASL teams and some USL teams are losing uh, that he's leaving after a season. However, I'm not surprised given that when you read some of his expectations in terms of what he thought would happen with this League One team, that you know, the, the part that people may not recognize is that uh, Lansing kind of came into the league right at the end of this expansion cycle yeah. for the season. So they had a month, month and a half, if that, to build a team from scratch. And when you read some of the interviews that were given from Lansing front office personnel, it seemed that there was a clear misunderstanding or at least, at best, a gross exaggeration of what one might expect for a Division Three team vis-a-vis the expectations for attendance, vis-a-vis the expectations for what sponsorship revenue would be generated. So there seemed to be either a gross misunderstanding or exaggeration. And when you look at it through that lens, once reality hit the ownership, I think uh, because of that I say... It surprised me a little bit, but didn't surprise me for another reason. So, just I think it's a learning learning curve for a lot of these ownership groups, and uh, it's pretty clear that the Lugnuts group, uh, Lugnuts ownership group, were not ready for this job. Yeah, okay, and that 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 seems insane to me. Uh, you know, obviously you come into uh, you know minor you know minor league soccer, lower division soccer, yeah. uh, at the third division no less. Uh, and they were expect, you know, if, if, I don't know who misled them or if they just were delusional about what to expect. Um, it appears, you know, looking at the story and, and I'll direct everyone to the Lansing City Pulse, uh, dot com, uh, which has a good story from Chris Gray on this, uh, to give him some credit because that's where I'm cribbing some of the, uh, some of the information for, uh, from. But it, it looks like they, they averaged around 2,800, uh, fans per game. Now that is reported, quote unquote. Uh, Napoon, I'm, um, I'm Skyping with Napoon and he is, uh, air quoting me and, uh, you can tell, uh, uh that's, uh, you know, there's a good reason why. So they had reported attendance of about 2,800, which would be fantastic for uh, League One side. 
Um, but they were expecting in the range of 4,000 to 4,500, uh, people attending these games. That seems absolutely crazy to, uh, to project, uh, for again, a league, a USL side, you know, certain USL sides would be happy to get 2,800, yes. uh, fans, uh, per game, uh, to say nothing of the league one side. But, uh, it, I guess, as you said, it just goes to, again, what their expectations, um, whether they were misled or just, you know, overly estimated what they were going to be able to do. Uh, it just seems, that just seems like a crazy way to, to, to come into the league, even on short notice. Well, the other thing, Mickey, is that as we've seen over the last two or three years, there really has been a huge influx of ownership groups that own baseball stadiums, yeah. minor league baseball stadiums, into USL. Uh, it started with USL Championship, and still continuing in USL Championship. And it's no surprise that an ownership group, in this case the Lugnus ownership group, felt that they could adapt that model for Lansing. I think what the, the big... And I'm not sure they're wrong, per se, actually. Um, yeah, just, I mean, uh, there's a proof of concept. It's worked at other places, for sure, and it continues to do so. But I think the learning curve here is that it won't work for every place, right? So it's a proof of concept that it'll work for some places, but it may not work for every market. And Lansing already had an NPSL team, Lansing United, which was uh, owned by who, the person who became the president of Lansing, uh, Ignite, uh, Jeremy Sampson. And uh, it, you know, did well. Uh, they had a good rivalry with Detroit City FC. Uh, some would call it banter. Some would call it trolling. But there was there was enough interest to keep that team going at the NPSL level. The jump to pro soccer clearly was just a misfit. I'm not maybe not for the time of a town of Lansing per se, but the intermix of Lugnuts. Uh, previous ownership vis-a-vis Jeremy Sampson plus this, uh, plus when you throw in Lansing United into a pro setting becoming Lansing Ignite I just don't think there was enough there to make this a sustainable model and there are lessons for other ownerships who are thinking about doing this similar thing um, and you know it's, unfortunately as you know better than a lot of people Mickey this is the reality of Lower Division Soccer in America, there is a constant turnstile nature to teams coming in and out of these leagues. Yeah, and uh, that's a good jumping off point to ta- to talk about some other teams and just some general uh, you know issues within USL and also our later discussion regarding the professional league standards. Uh, you know, there's some reports of other te- uh, teams in USL uh, being on life support. Fresno FC is apparently 50-50 on survival. Uh, and then uh, Philadelphia Fury uh, as well. Uh, I want to actually start with the Fury because that's a, a kind of a curious situation. Um, the uh, you know, <laughs> as we uh, laughs, Nisa you know from the jump has it, it seems to have been a bit rushed. I think it's fair to say, but they wanted to get out there. Um, I was out there when they were trying to get uh, sanctioning from U.S. Soccer back at the uh, the annual general meeting um, in, in February. And was talking with, you know, sources, uh, left and right about, you know, whether they were going to get sanctioning. Um, they ultimately did and were set to begin their schedule this, this fall and have to some degree, but, uh, the Philadelphia Fury, uh, have been put on a hiatus at least until the spring season. Is that right? And, 
and it's questionable whether they ever get off the ground. So uh, I'm just curious, what uh, what have you heard about the Fury specifically and how that impacts uh, NISA generally? Look, I tend to be pretty measured about people because I, I feel that I don't want to I, – I usually recognize that there's another person at this who's listening to this who may be insulted by something I say. I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. But let's be clear. Matt Driver has no business owning a professional soccer team. No business owning a professional soccer team. From the first day that Philadelphia, and by the way, for those listening, Matt Driver is the, was the owner of, well, <laughs> the owner for the most part. Uh, we don't know who this, uh, this crazy benefactor was in the background, but at least the face of the mark, uh, face of the franchise was, uh, Matt Driver. Now, from the first day, there have been conversations in the background about Matt Driver uh, not treating his players correctly in terms of payments, uh, payments falling behind, um, payments coming in late. So, you know, this this is something that happened within two months of the league starting. And I think, and this is based on multiple conversations I've had with multiple people within NISA, I don't think Philadelphia Fury comes back Regardless of what Matt Driver says on Twitter, he's claiming that they'll be back in the spring. Uh, I don't think they'll come back. If they do, it will not be with Matt Driver at the helm, and I can pretty much guarantee that. Uh, I think Nisa personnel are pretty frustrated with Matt Driver, as they should be. Uh, they have to put out a fire immediately after the league started, and there's a lot more to the story that, that I can't reveal because things were told to me off record. But suffice to say... Um, that, that team was a, a great example of what happens when you let a team in without doing the appropriate vetting, without doing the appropriate background. And the reason for it, Mickey, and I'll, I'll end with this thought, the reason for it is it wasn't that Nisa was naive. It was the fact that they needed eight teams yeah. to get functioning. If there had been another team, I can guarantee you that Philadelphia Fury would not have started this season as a part of NISA because there were serious concerns about that about that application. There's another team in NISA right now that NISA personnel don't think has a long-term future. Uh, but the goal, again, for NISA remains try to get to next season, try to get to 10 to 12 teams. NISA personnel believe that if they get to 12 teams, they'll be able to remove the provisional sanction and become a fully sanctioned Division Three team. They're not close to 12 right now. Yeah. And uh, it's, again, that you know, obviously, I haven't talked to the sources you've talked to on this, but again, that just squares with what I think U.S. Soccer was concerned about at the beginning of this thing when they were going through the sanctioning process. Um, and it also speaks to uh, another subject, which, as I said, we're going to talk about in a minute. What uh, uh, I did want to ask: uh, what what do you what's your what are your thoughts on where the league is generally? Um, going forward, if Philadelphia is out and they have another team set to replace them, that gets them back to eight, which is the startup point for uh, Division Three. Um, so, just generally speaking, what uh, what do you think are the prospects uh, for the league to be at eight teams um, in 2020? I guess uh, we'll put it there. I think Nisa's biggest asset, Mickey. Excuse me, still feeling this this cold. Um, its biggest asset is not some great model that clubs love. It is the fact that they're the only alternative in town to yeah. USL. And 
that is the rallying point which has drawn the likes of Chattanooga back into the mix, Detroit City into the mix, and the big one was Miami FC. I did not believe that Nisa had a fighting chance until Miami FC came on board. And now that Miami is on board, and there are rumors about Cosmos, and yeah. we can come back to that, <laughs> I, I think Nisa has a fighting chance. However, let's not forget that a lot of the names we are throwing around now uh, are names that were linked with a league that you and I covered okay. that is no longer in existence, yes. uh, NASL. So what I'm getting at is I think Nisa has a great opportunity, Mickey. It has some fantastic, quote, independent clubs, if, if that's a thing, in the mix that that are kind of the heroes of the uh, the alternative soccer crowd. And there's a lot of people. I think I think that's one of the mistakes we make is we think it's a fringe, but truly, it is a lot of people who are very invested in this other non MLS, non USL part of American soccer. So there is a huge opportunity for Nisa. It does not currently have the right leadership, in my opinion, to make it a long-term success. I don't think John Pruch and the Pruch family and all of the people in Nisa are going to be able to... They're, they're money people and they're good at that part of it, but they are not going to be able to lead a professional soccer team. Or soccer league, sorry. Um, they need new leadership, which is not easy to get. Yeah. They need to uh, navigate USSF sanctioning, which again is a non-trivial consideration, especially if you have a team like Cosmos in the mix, especially if you have a team like Miami FC in the mix that are both suing or part of litigation towards USSF. So there are a lot of hurdles for Nisa, but they have a great opportunity. That's how I would summarize it. Yeah, and I think that's a good point to jump into what you were just talking about in reference, which is the professional league sanctioning. And... I, I suppose that Lansing, Ignite, and Philadelphia Fury are in some ways uh, exhibits as to why those uh, those standards are needed, at least in some um, in some respects. Uh, obviously, the uh, professional league standards have been around since the the early '90s when uh, U.S. soccer was getting MLS together. Uh, actually, uh, you know, before I got on the uh, horn with you, I went back and I looked at Sunil Galati's declaration in the uh, NASL lawsuit. Um, and he went kind of through a history of, of the, uh, the professional league standards and the they reasoning. Have been updated yeah. Yeah. They've been, oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and that is also part of the lawsuit, the, uh, the frequency with which, uh, they have attempted to, uh, update those standards. Right. But, uh, you know, going back to the, the, the late nineties, um, and or through the early two thousands, uh, it's a fair, it's fair to say that those, uh, those standards were probably necessary, at least, uh, as they were outlined because of the history of, uh, of, of, you know, quote unquote, fly by night soccer right. operations and league operations, but uh, at some point uh, they have become you know a problem in that they may or arguably hinder teams for and leagues from from getting you know from growing um, from yeah. where they initially started. Detroit uh, City FC being a prime example of of, of that. Absolutely, um, and I think. What's important to notice is that there are a lot of examples of teams that meet USSF standards that shouldn't be pro. And we, so, you know, you started this conversation with maybe, maybe, uh, um, Lansing and uh, Philadelphia Furia examples of why the standards are needed. I think, I'll be more specific here, 
there are examples of why some standards are needed. Yeah. But they are, I would argue, they are examples of why these standards are highly flawed. Right? So the idea here is that as long as you are rich enough, essentially, as long as you are rich enough, you have a seat at the table. That is the approach for U.S. soccer. It just matters how rich you are. If you're really, really rich, you're at the top level with MLS. If you are 20 million rich, you're at D2. If you're 10 million rich, you're at D3. And then there are some other standards in regards to stadium size, seating, uh, um, time zones, etc. But really, the, the operational factor here is, are you rich enough? Right? Yeah. yeah. So what has happened is you have ownership, and we can talk about Chattanooga Red Wolves as a great example of this, that have no link to the city in which their team is, but they're rich enough, so they have a seat at the table, right? Uh, you have San Francisco Deltas. Uh, Fabio Egel, who's a billionaire from Brazil, had this team with, uh, that played great football for one year, died at the end of the year. So the turnstile nature is indicative of a couple of things to me, that standards are needed, but that these st- these specific standards need revision. And maybe that's a starting point for our conversation. And, yeah, I guess uh, to, to back up for those who may not, uh, you know, be familiar with professional league standards, they are a set of rules that uh, are imposed by uh, the U.S. Soccer Federation um, that you need to satisfy to, uh, as a team gets sanctioning, as a league gets sanctioning, um, obviously, the league is is kind of the overriding uh, issue here, um, and there are things, as you said, uh, as far as uh, you know, where you have your teams, the size of the metropolitan market, uh, the uh, stadium sizes. Uh, you got to have league offices, uh, a media operation. Uh, you've got to have uh, sufficient amount of money, as as you said, um, and we're, you know, at the at the. Division one level where, uh, MLS is currently the only team, uh, there, uh, the standards are obviously the highest, um, and they get less stringent as you get down the, get down the line, though they are still, still fairly stringent as we talk about you needing a principal owner of a team to have a, a net worth, at, even at the D3 level of $10 million, I believe it is. Yep. Yep. Um, and well, it's just, uh, I just, you talked a little bit about what you would uh, that there needs to be some some modifications to those uh, those standards. Uh, what would you say are some of the uh, standards uh, and rules that need to uh, U.S. Soccer should probably take a look at um, as far as helping to develop uh, helping leagues uh, get into the system and develop? I think the principal ownership requirement should be completely stripped away. Instead, there should be a higher requirement for a security bond. Uh, Right now, there's a security bond that every team has to pay, which for anyone who's listening is basically a fund to ensure that if the team dies, the players get paid. Essentially, that's what it is. And the vendors as well. Uh, Sorry, the vendors, exactly. So that the team can't just up and leave town, essentially. I think that money should be increased. I think there should be better vetting of teams and owners But that requirement of an owner having to be X amount of dollars, I think is completely pointless. I really do think it's completely pointless. Um, Now, someone might argue, well, what's stopping me, as someone who has 0.1 point 
zero zero one million dollars in my bank account. Uh, <laughs> well, you're doing pretty well there, uh, the lady. You know, don't 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 sell yourself short. <laughs> I was going to say point one. I'd be really happy if I had point one million in, uh, in my bank account. Um, that's not the case. Now, what's stopping me from then launching a USL team? USL will stop me from launching a USL <laughs> yes. team because I will not meet those metrics that USL wants in an ownership. It should not be a USSF-driven decision to prevent owners from entering the game. And I think it is absolutely absurd for USSF to have these arbitrary requirements of time zones and requirements of... So, uh, you know, let me let me put it in a question uh, as a question. Why is it that a Division Two league needs to have teams in three time zones? Is there an answer to it? Wouldn't it be better if the Division Two team had more teams in a sequestered area? Wouldn't that be better overall for the health of the league? Sure, you can make the argument that uh, an impressive league should be expanded across the country, but that's one of the reasons teams are hemorrhaging money is travel. Yeah. So I feel like I feel like don't get me wrong. I completely agree with the idea that the that the standards were set up for the right reasons. They were set up during a time where there was even more instability in soccer than there is now. And they were set up for the reasons to ensure that only people that can afford to lose money invest in this game. That's a great way to put it. (laughs) Exactly. But now we've come to the point where that needs to be revised. I think the goal of the the U.S. standards should uh, should now be selectivity as opposed to Monetary subjectivity. Yeah, and um, as, as far as the uh, as the PLS goes uh, and their you know potential uh, modification, it doesn't appear that there's any uh, revisions going on at the moment. However, they may be forced to revise them depending on how the uh, the outcome of a uh, specific lawsuit, which I, I, I do want to talk about. So uh, maybe not in the legal aspect, but just kind of, you know, where uh, where we kind of see things going. Um, for those, you know, I'm sure most of you know that the NSL is uh, suing U.S. Soccer and uh, MLS. You don't, you don't know that at this point. Yeah, yeah you're <laughs> listening to the wrong podcast. Uh, and that case is, is set to go to trial sometime in 2020, we think. Late 2020, early 2021, probably. Well, we're still in discovery, right? Yeah, still in the discovery phase. Uh, they're doing a bunch of stuff with getting depositions set up, and you know they they're still arguing about that kind of stuff. So, don't for anybody out there, uh, don't expect a trial in, in that case until late 2020, early 2021. Um, but along with the uh, allegations of conspiracy between uh, MLS and U.S. Soccer, there's also a uh, kind of an overriding argument that the professional league standards uh, are overly oppressive and violate antitrust law. Um, and it's what, you know, again, you're not a lawyer, uh, I am, so I probably should be the one monologuing on this, but I'm, I was just, um, interested from, uh, what, what do you see as the, uh, as the best case scenario for a, uh, for a revision to those standards, whether it's agreed to by U.S. soccer or the court strikes down a number of these standards? So what, what would I like to see change? Is yeah. that what you mean? Or do you mean outcome-wise? Uh, outcome-wise. Yeah. I think I think the best-case scenario is that USSF meets with USL, NISA, NPSL, NWSL, 
um, MLS, of course, um, WPSL, basically six or seven of the important leagues, and uh, both the men's and women's side, uh, and possibly the indoor league, MASL, or whatever it is, because standards apply to them as well, as you know. Yeah. And have a conversation about what seems correct. And what I mean by that is, usually when these conversations are had, there's a standardization of the vote based on how high a league is in, the, in U, U.S. soccer. Therefore, MLS has a weighted vote that is much heavier than USL. USL has a weighted vote which is heavier than I NISA. Think MLS has got close to 50% <laughs> just off, uh, just on the off. But it was like 40, 39%, yeah, or something. It's, it's, something exorbitantly high. And when you combine it with USL, it's, it's close to like 60% or something like that. So, I think there needs to be a conversation about salience uh, in in the ranks of these leagues, whether these leagues actually have any say in their own destiny or it's just being decided by MLS, USL. So anyway, I feel like I'm long, going long-winded and really it should be you who's opining on this. But what I will say in one sentence is there needs to be a conversation between USSF and the, and the leagues at play to adjust these standards in a way that benefits all the leagues and not just a couple of leagues. Yeah, and and one of the things I was I was just uh, looking at um, is it, one of the professional league standard requirements is that you have to demonstrate the oppor- uh, the ability to operate a team for at least three years. And you just we're just talking about Lansing and Knight who, sure, their ownership groups could have done that, but they apparently are now dropping out after one, so one wonders what the what the point of such a rule is if right. there is no mandating that they pony up for a three-year investment. Um, now, perhaps part of that goes to the fact that they didn't necessarily know what they were getting into when they started as far as, you know, what they were going to lose. But, of course, that goes back into the vetting of the ownership groups in the first place. And I'll say one more thing here with uh, regards to teams like Lansing. We, I talked about NISA, about how they want to get to the finish line. The same thing happened with the USL League One. And regardless of how USL pretends that it's done so well with League One and that there are hundreds of teams interested, I don't know if you remember, but they had like this huge tour of the country yes. where they went to yes. these different cities and every week it was, oh, we're here, we're there. That was all PR. Okay. The truth is, and I can tell you this for sure, I have confirmed it in multiple ways, USL League One struggled to get to eight teams, okay? That is a fact. And they had the same problem that NISA did, which is to get these teams to be the ones to sign on for the first set. And the way they helped with that, Mickey, which it comes back to your point, is that they really lowered their expectations and their requirements for the first incoming batch of teams. And... Which is probably makes some sense. It probably makes some sense to do that because you're getting in on the ground floor, and uh, given where lower division soccer is in the United States, uh, it it probably makes sense to relax uh, those those standards because uh, there's a lot of risk involved there um, in being in being the first set of teams. So, uh, again, I don't really blame USL for that, but maybe they shouldn't have oversold uh, if if they did in fact do so, and that's what Lansing and is kind of. You know, implying here with with some of their statements, uh, perhaps uh, USL shouldn't have uh, oversold uh, what the league could be in such a short period. 
And actually, um, that also leads into uh, the last thing I wanted to chat with you about with respect to USL League One um, is we've got obviously them coming up on the end of their first year, and that obviously leads into what's going to be going on in 2020. Uh, there are multiple reports or numerous reports that a number of MLS teams, uh, their, their second division teams or uh, MLS two teams, uh, will be moving down to USL League One. Uh, we've got one out here in Seattle, obviously, in the Tacoma ah. Defiance, uh, who uh, have moved down to uh, Tacoma from uh, Starfire, which was in Tukwila, suburb of Seattle. And uh, they have had a rough go of it on the field and some improvement in the stands, but not so much that it maybe justifies uh, the move overall. Um, but I'm just curious, what, uh, if anything, are you hearing about what, you know, what USL is going to do about the uh, MLS two sides. Um, do you think there's going to be a fight um, to try to move them, or do you think it's going to be more voluntary? I guess I'll start there. I think it will be more voluntary, at least for 2020. Uh, I think the reason for that is, right now, I don't think USL wants to upset the apple cart. Um, if you see, again, you know, USL League One made this huge thing about how men, I mean, we have a, a Edwards on the record talking about how many teams were interested in USL League One. The truth is, all the teams joining are MLS two teams, right? Yeah. Uh, so we'll have uh, Revolution, Inter Miami, Omaha is probably the only independent team. I don't think Rhinos will come back. Uh, I'm not sure about what's going to happen with Penn FC either. Uh, we're losing Lansing Ignite. So there's a lot of turbulence and really... The MLS two teams, what they did for USL when USL was a Division three league back in 2011, starting in 2011, uh, and then when the MLS two teams started to actually join in 2014, 2015, they really stabilized USL. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. They completely stabilized USL, and they are an inextricable point after which USL's expansion fees and its successes start to increase. And you can map that out really well. On a, on a graph, which is what I love to do as a scientist. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the reason I bring that up is essentially USL League One is going to follow the same model, but at the same time it's not going to force those initial teams uh, to drop down to the USL League One level. However, USL has told multiple teams, multiple MLS teams, that they need to start uh, meeting the requirements of Division Two teams or they're going to be constantly penalized because USL is still fighting for general waivers yeah. or they're sanctioning. And yeah, and they're, even, they're provisionally sanctioned. Uh, they got provisional sanctioning in 2017 for three years. On, so USL is a fully sanctioned D2 league now. Oh, they are fully sanctioned now. Oh, they're, they're fully sanctioned D2 league, but they still have to fight for waivers. Yes, they have yeah. to fight for waivers. The thing is, NASL had to file for Division Two specific waivers, whereas USL is filing for general waivers such as, uh, for example, Oklahoma City Energy has a stadium that is, I think, two feet too narrow for the <coughs> excuse me, general USSF FIFA requirements. Yeah. So it's stuff like that that they're still having to file waivers for. Uh, so the point I'm trying to make is, essentially, there are some teams that, uh, some MLS2 teams that are, that are uh, not meeting all the requirements, and USL is pressuring them to meet those requirements or encouraging them to drop down to Division Three, where the requirements are more, more lax. So that's kind of where we are. No one's being forced to do anything yet, but I think as 
waivers become more of an issue for USL, that conversation might start to change. Yeah, and your point about where MLS helped USL stabilize is well taken and, you know, partially obviously explains why USL is, is not, you know, trying to kick every uh, MLS two side down to USL one that's you know, kind of biting the, the hand that fed you or uh, use, uh, choose your, uh, choose your uh, metaphor. So it'll be, you know, I think ultimately uh, some of those teams will, as you say, voluntarily move down uh, once USL league one, if it gets stabilized, some of the MLS two sides will probably work to uh, improve uh, their status as far as sanctioning is concerned. Uh, prime examples, Tacoma Defiance out here trying to get a soccer-specific right. stadium built. Um, and, and so that, you know, obviously would, would help them fully comply with the, uh, with the, uh, you know, USL standards and the, uh, US soccer standards, uh, generally speaking. Definitely. Yep. All right. Well, I think that's a good place to end it. I'm going to let you prepare for your long trek. Uh, you're, you're heading on the road, it sounds like. So, uh, Get some uh, rest, and I want to thank Nipun for uh, joining me here on the podcast. Before we let you go, uh, where can people find your work? Uh, people can find my work um, on my Twitter, which is Soccer Reform. <laughs> You're going to get me in trouble. Nipun Chopra 7, and uh, you can find our work at Sock Takes. That's where I do most of my writing. And Mickey, genuine pleasure chatting with you. We'll try not to make... It's so long until we chat again. Yep, sounds good. Thanks again to Napoon for uh, joining me, and uh, we'll be right back. Once again, I want to thank Napoon for joining me on this edition of the Soccer ESQ Podcast. When it comes to lower division soccer, he's one of the best out there covering the sport in the United States. Once again, you can find me online at Turner ESQ on Twitter. You can find my writing at SoccerESQ.com as well as at The Athletic and at Sounder at Heart. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and enjoy some soccer. 